The reading this morning can be found on page 244 of the Church Bibles. Page 244, which is Judges 3, 12 to 31. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone stone image near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, "Your, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch, He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. 
after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word. And we pray, please, now, as we look at this uh, passage with Eglon and Ehud, Father, please help us to understand it and to understand what you are teaching us through it and help us to respond to you. Amen. Well, we love uh, a hero and villain story, don't we? Uh, whether it's Spider-Man versus the Green Goblin, Batman versus the Joker, James Bond versus Blofeld, or Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty, we love a hero and a villain. And the villains need to be really bad, and the heroes need to be really brave. Uh, it is a passage which is not just trying to give us history. I'm glad there was a little bit of laughter as we went through the passage, as it was read, and thank you for reading it, Sue. There should be, because uh, uh, one commentator said, it, this, is, this is history, but it's done in cartoon style. Or Dale Ralph Davis, in his book on this passage, says, it's amazing how many common trying to be serious don't get the joke of this passage. It's supposed to be funny. Which isn't to say it didn't happen. It did happen. It's just being portrayed to us in a sort of caricature, comic, uh, cartoon kind of way. And so we're going to see the villain and the hero. First of all, the villain. Eglon, the fat oppressor. I was going to call him the fat controller, but I be might be misleading for some. Okay, the story follows the usual judge's pattern. If you were here last week, you'll know we talked about the cycle. And if you did the homework, you'll have read the bit about Othniel and seen all different parts of the cycle that just runs over and over again. And see that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Egg, king of Moab, power over Israel. There you've got the first few parts of the people do evil, they reject God, God is angry, uh, their, his, their enemies can overpower them. And in this case, it's Eglon, king of Moab. And he's given power uh, the Israelites through an alliance. He does it, verse 13, getting the and the Amalekites to join him. And so Eglon comes and attacks Israel, and they take possession of the city of Palms, which is probably Jericho. And he says the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So there you go. There is our villain, Eglon. And we are told in verse 17 that he is a very fat man. One commentator uh, tells us that that translation is is probably underplaying it, underplaying the force of the original. He is an extremely fat man, it says. You're probably thinking Jabba the Hutt kind of thing, if you know your Star Wars. He's vast, bulges of fat. And he's wheeled in, probably, into Israel, to Jericho, in a, probably an oversized chariot. They've probably got to get him in that way. Uh, and he is installed, 
plunked on his large throne there. And how does he maintain his physique? Well, we see that tributes are brought to him. That's what Ehud does. Ehud is called upon to bring tributes to, uh, to Eglon. In other words, that means that the Israelites are having to give to Eglon food or money, not sure which, might be grain. I like to think of it as being trifles and cake, that kind of thing. But they are to bring him um, tribute regularly. And he is oppressing the people of Israel. That means, uh, and they cry out to God. So it must have been terrible for them. This must mean that, that they are giving their food, their money to Eglon, but they themselves do not have enough to live on. Or they are barely making an existence. And just consider, it should have been so different. The people of Israel should have been bringing their tribute to the Lord God who so generously provides for them. But they've turned away from God. Eglon has come in, and they are now bringing their tribute to Eglon, who leech-like sits in Jericho, taking what they will give and giving nothing back. That is the situation of the people, and that is the villain. Now, the Bible tells us, and we saw this a little bit last week, that there is a sense in which all mankind is under this kind of oppression. We talked last week about the slavery of sin. I quoted uh, Jesus from John chapter 8. But Paul also, in Romans 6, talks about people as being slaves to sin. What is sin? Well, it is rejecting God as king and putting someone or something else in God's place. Why do we do that? Well, because the other thing promises us so much and makes God out to be the oppressor. Oh, God, you know, it seems, is so restrictive. God is so boring. Put something else in charge of your life, we think. Live for yourself. Live for your own fulfilment. Grab life while you can. But the reality is that such a way of life is a slavery and that thing, whatever it is that we will put in God's place, will become an eglon, an evil tyrant that will demand more and more. I was reading a book uh, recently about uh, a lady who used to be a Buddhist nun uh, who became a Christian. And it is amazing to read of the way of life of these Buddhist uh, nuns and monks it is incredibly basic. They're trying to detach themselves from the world. And as you read it, they see, you see them putting themselves through incredible suffering. She describes it as sensory deprivation. And you think, why would someone do that? Well, she says at one point, several of the monks and nuns were very intelligent people. And many had studied at university. Some had also lived self-indulgent lives, sometimes mixed up in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Then, becoming unfulfilled, damaged, and confused, they went to the other extreme of giving it all up, seeking answers in self-denial and abstinence, looking for a way out of the suffering that their self-indulgent lifestyles had caused them. Do you see how they swing from one eglon to another? We can think, ah, oh, the self-indulgent life, that's the life of freedom. But these people found it wasn't. 
It actually just brings harm. It is a hollow life to go for those things, and we find that if we live for self-indulgent pleasure, it becomes an eglon. It demands more and more and gives less and less. But their solution then was to give that up and try to do without everything. And actually, we can see that then becomes a tyrant, doesn't it? That they're putting themselves through incredible self-denial and incredible suffering, having to give and give and get nothing back. Whatever we put in God's place will become a fat oppressor. And freedom is not found either in self-indulgence or in self-denial. It is only found in Jesus. Again, in John 8, Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's John 8, 31 to 32. So we see the villain in the story, the fat oppressor Eglon. And the Israelites cry out after 18 years of oppression. And we now come to the hero. Verse 15. Have a look at verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So here we go. Here is the hero, Ehud. Ehud, who is a left-handed man. And there's kind of wordplay going on here because um, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin literally means son of my right hand. Your right hand normally being your powerful hand. And therefore, for him to be the son of my right hand, but he's left-handed... Well, he is to take the tribute to Eglon, to bring in the trifle in the wheelbarrow, along with a few others. But verse 16, he has a plan. He makes a sword, a double-edged sword that is just the right length to strap to his right thigh, where he as a left-hander can easily get to it. He goes to take the latest tribute to Eglon. And verse 19, at the images, after he's given the tribute to Eglon, verse 19, it says, he then says to King Eglon, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. Well, blubbery Eglon, intrigued by this, wants to know what this message is. And so sends away all his bodyguards, all his servants, I want to know what this secret message is. And uh, having sent everyone away, then Ehud approaches him, verse 20, sitting alone in his upper room. And he adds a little bit. He says, I have a message from God for you. Eglon, intrigued all the more, rises from his seat, maybe out of reverence for the fact it is a message from God. He eases his way out of his throne, standing up, belly protruding. Ehud reaches with his left hand, draws the sword and plunges it into the king's belly. And then the detail is grim, isn't it? The handle sinks in after the blade, his bowels discharge. He doesn't pull it out. Why would you? The fat closes over it. Grim, isn't it? The deed is done, 
and now the hero must escape. He locks the door and flees. And then the comedy double act turn up. You've got to have a comedy double act in this kind of thing. The guards turn up. Where have they been up to this point? I don't know. But anyway, they turn up and find out that the doors are locked, verse 24. And possibly smelling the excrement which has come out of Eglon through the door, they think, ah, he must be relieving himself. And given his diet, maybe they think, well, we know this can last a while. So they settle in for a long wait. But it says, verse 25, they wait to the point of embarrassment. Ah, oh, it's taking a long time, this. It's longer than normal. Are you going to knock on the door? Ask if he's all right? No, no, you do it. No, no, let's wait a bit longer. Remember what happened last time. Oh, no. Well, they get to the point of embarrassment. They send for the spare key, open the door. And there, we are told, is their Lord fallen to the floor dead. In the meantime, Ehud has made his escape, gets to Sarah, blows the trumpet, calls the Israelites to come and attack the Moabites, and says, verse 28, follow me, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. They follow him, take possession of the fords of the Jordan. That means they've cut off the Moabites. The Moabites can't now get back to their homeland, and no reinforcements can get to them. And it is a massacre, 10,000 of them killed. And then there is peace for 80 years. So there it is, the hero, Ehud. It is a great story, if somewhat grotesque, a good story for a cartoon or a film. But this is in the Bible. So what are we to make of Ehud? What do you make of him? His methods, are they good? Are they bad? Now we know Ehud was raised up by God to be a deliverer, verse 15. And verse 28, he gives the glory to God. He says, the Lord has given us victory over Moab. But he uses deception and murder. Is that good? The books I've read on this go two different ways on that. Is he a hero? Is he a villain? Do his methods have God's approval? Well, we shouldn't be squeamish about the killing of God's enemies. That in and of itself doesn't mean that what he did was wrong. But we don't actually read of God telling Ehud what to do. Uh, and the passage is silent at that point. But the thing is, as we go on through the book of Judges, if we just assume that the deliverer must be doing the right thing, we'll come into trouble. Because the deliverers, the judges, get worse and worse. And by the time you get to Samson, towards the, the end of the book of Judges, he is morally awful. He's sleeping with prostitutes, marrying a Philistine. He, he's terrible. And Jephthah, a bit before Samson, does an unspeakably horrible act, which I won't tell you about, but we'll come to in due course. And these are also people God has raised up. And what we see in Judges is what we see elsewhere in the Old Testament and elsewhere in the Bible, that God does raise up rescuers and deliverers for God's people. But with, they often have questionable methods 
And often they are very flawed. I mean, you can think of other examples. I mean, King David would be another great hero of the Old Testament who commits adultery because he's in the position to be able to do so and, and then murders murder in order to try to cover it up. All of the deliverers in the Bible, apart from one, are flawed. And they are limited. And we see this certainly with Ehud. He is limited in the deliverance that he brings. Yes, he he rescues Israel and, and they have peace, but the peace lasts for 80 years. And then if you look down to chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. His rescue, his deliverance is limited. It's only 80 years. And therefore we need to see that while Ehud was a deliverer sent by God, he was an incomplete deliverer, whose methods were, well, questionable, and whose deliverance couldn't last. So could we have the next slide, please, Andrew? The incomplete hero and the real hero. You see, there's a lesson for us in this pattern. In fact, there are quite a few lessons for us, and we'll pick them up as we go on further in the book of Judges. But today, I want us just to see this. Ehud is a limited, questionable deliverer. And in the Bible, there are lots of them. Now, we need to learn a lesson from this, because our hearts long for a deliverer. And it is a stronger desire than we like to admit. We want someone to swoop in and save us in various ways. Politically, we want a leader to come in to sort out the mess that just always seems to be there. Emotionally, we want someone to fulfill our needs and our wants, for our longing for love and intimacy. Psychologically, we want someone, and maybe a counsellor, to help us with our fears our anxieties, to help us just get through life. We want someone to help us. Physically, we want someone when we are ill, someone who will sort things out. Don't we go to the doctors sometimes wanting them to be our hero, our deliverer, to deal with things? And spiritually, we want someone who will lead us, feed us, teach us. And in God's goodness, he does often send us people to help us, doesn't he? Sometimes they're very effective. The longing for a spouse may be met. The longing for mental health is sometimes answered through a counsellor. And sometimes God does send very gifted church leaders. Sometimes they have a huge, incredible impact. They would come in and maybe take a church from just a few people to thousands of people in, in a very short time. And they might have a huge impact on a town, on a city, maybe on the global church. God sends someone and seems to raise someone up in incredible ways. And often they are faithful and they keep being faithful, but sometimes they fall in spectacular ways. And we can be left thinking, God, what are you doing? Did you raise up these people? Sometimes people get very hurt by them and and we can be confused by it. What was going on? Well, the answer, I think, is something along the lines of these judges. God does raise up people. He raises up people to help us. 
And that is genuine, that is real. But those people are flawed and limited. And all of the rescuers, all of the deliverers in the Bible really are pointing us to the real hero. Ehud, at his best, points away from himself, doesn't he? He says, follow me, for the Lord has given Moab, our enemy, into our hands. He points away from himself. And all of the best deliverers do that in the Bible, pointing away from themselves to the Lord. And actually, they point us to Jesus, who is the only deliverer whose method is never questionable. He did not use deception and murder. He spoke the truth and was murdered. And the deliverance he brings, deliverance from our greatest enemy, from our oppressor, sin, is not a rescue that lasts a mere 80 years, but lasts for eternity. And all the helpers God sends into our lives should point us to Jesus and say, find your meaning and your purpose, your love and your fulfilment in him. He and he alone won't let you down. We can't be your saviour. You can't be my saviour. I can't be your saviour. But Jesus can. He is the real hero. Our verse for the year sums this up, doesn't it? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Well, we're going to, in a few minutes, if you're in the building, have communion together in which we remember how Jesus achieved our rescue. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that Jesus came, the great hero, to defeat uh, our greatest enemy, sin. And Father, we pray that you would help us to look to Jesus as our saviour and our deliverer. Amen.